This is Stephanie Phillips, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Henrik and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on SpoilerVerse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at SpoilerCountry at gmail.com. United Armies of the Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That's Mr. Horsley. And today on the show... Well, it's Stephanie Phillips, isn't it? Writer extraordinaire sat down with Jeff, talked about all of the lovely things she has written. And if you don't know who she is, which you should, she uh, wrote the Red Tornado story in the upcoming Cybernetic Summer from D.C. She worked with Crimes of Passion, Butcher of Paris, Artemis, Red Atlantis, Descendant, Devil Within... Kicking Ice, and she wrote stories for Heavy Metal. She's worked on a bunch of stuff, and Jeff sat down and had a wonderful conversation with us. So let's not bore you more with my voice. Let you hear Jeff and Stephanie in their own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. This we're Today we're talking to Stephanie Phillips. How's it going, Stephanie? Great. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's a great pleasure. You're definitely one of the most popular writers right now, it seems like, in comics. You're doing everything, it sounds like. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, doing a lot, but, you know, that that's really good and doing a lot of different things. So it's it's definitely fun working on all those different projects. Now, now by my account, so you're doing Butcher of Paris for Dark Horse. You're mm-hmm. doing uh, A Man Among You for, is it Image? Yeah, Top Cow Image. And you're doing Artemis and the Assassin for Aftershock. Mm-hmm. You're doing heavy metal as well. Mm-hmm. What else are you working on? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm doing another book for Aftershock called Red Atlantis. It's it's really an interesting one because I'm working with actually a former kind of uh, spy from Russia. Who nice. Yeah, he defected to the U.S. and he came up with this story that... I mean, there's some supernatural elements involved, but it's very heavily based on a lot of his own life experiences. So I've been able to kind of work closely with him. He went to Aftershock with the idea. He's not a writer. And so they kind of were looking for somebody to help be a bit of an intermediary between his brain and the comic script and kind of make sure everything was put together in, you know, the five issue package kind of deal. So it's been really interesting. I've learned a lot about different like KGB fight tactics. So, nice. <laughs> um, at some point, I think one of my favorite parts of working on it, I was working on like kind of choreographing a fight scene. He was like, in Russia, they're not trained this way. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And he was like, well, my wife and I can Skype with you and show you what we mean. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> yes, 
please give me all of the knowledge about how to fight like a KGB agent because that's amazing. <laughs> so no, it was really cool stuff. I've learned a lot. And, you know, I, I always like when I'm working on a book and I get to learn new things and I, I like the collaboration element. So this is really cool because I'm learning directly from like a primary source that's yeah. just filled with information. I was like, I just, I want to talk to him all day. This is really cool <laughs> stuff. So I'm excited about that one, you know, with what's going on in the world. I don't really know all the release dates on things so everything's kind of pushed back a little bit so hopefully announcing some new stuff coming up as it looks like more stuff is opening up and you know distribution might be starting again for at least dc next week so that's great stuff yeah, so what did you think when you first one first said hey by the way this is an xkgb <laughs> age spy agent what do you think you want to take this one on did, did you when, when did you start checking your food and let someone else try it before you ate it <laughs> oh man uh you know, I, I'm probably on a watch list because of all the things I've Googled. I mean, I, I did want to learn about him. And, you know, you can go, his, his name's Jan, and you can go, like I like I did, I went and looked him up. And there's a lot of articles about, like, his experience defecting to the United States and what his role was with the U.S. government and how he's helped them and things like that. So, like, I mean, that's really super interesting. And, of course, you know, they asked me if I would do it. And I, not that I doubted that this was, like, a real thing, but I was just yeah. like... Like, how recent are we talking? All this stuff. So, you know, I looked it up and for sure there is like, you know, CNN front page kind of thing. So it's been really a neat experience to be able to work with somebody like that, that has so much information that honestly, like, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that I do a lot of projects where I like going down the research rabbit hole. I, I love yeah. pulling up archives and things like that. But in this case, like, here's Jan, like I can email him, I can call him <laughs> and I can get... Like, you know, sometimes I'm asking questions and I'm like, this is definitely not for the book. This is just for my own edification. <laughs> I just want to know. So that's that's been a really, really cool experience. And, you know, the art team on that one is, is great. We've got, you know, former James Bond artist, which seems very fitting. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so that's been really fun to work on. And I, I think that was scheduled for, I want to say, June. There's a possibility that that's on track, but there's also a possibility that now it's looking more like July or something. But the, the series is actually pretty much ready to go. So as soon as printing and distribution opens up, you know, same with Artemis and the Assassin and some of these other projects, as soon as that kind of shipping process opens back up, I think the, the floodgates will kind of open <laughs> and all these projects will get released again. <laughs> that That is awesome. I, I, I it, it's, it's just a funny thing to think you're, you're, you're going to like the FBI knocking down your door and you're going to be like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I made this mistake once a long time ago. I was working on, I was waiting to get picked up from an airport. And yeah. I realized that like the convention staff were like running behind. They were like, we're so sorry. I was like, no worries. There's a little cafe. I think it was in New Jersey. I was like, I'll just sit at the airport, open up the laptop and start working. And I, at the time I was working on a character that was building a homemade bomb. Nice. Well, about 10 minutes into Google searching as somebody that doesn't know how to build a homemade bomb, I yeah. realized that I was learning how to build a homemade bomb in <laughs> Newark airport. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> so I very quickly turned off all electronics and just walked outside. I was like, this is not good. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess if you're going to be the, uh, the TSA agent, you're like, well, the person went to the airport and decided <laughs> at the very last minute, the, the greatest protagonist, uh, not protagonist, the airport is like, you know, just right now, I'm going to try to learn how to do this with like five minutes to go before I get off this plane. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It was definitely not one of my brightest moments. But, you know, every once in a while, you just have to let the FBI agents that are listening know, like, I'm a writer. This is 
I, I never leave my house, I promise. So <laughs> I'm uh, afraid of all social interaction, let, let alone terrorism. So <laughs> the word, just for the listener, the word I was looking for was procra- uh, procrastinated. It's just, I just don't sound like I said protagonist. <laughs> I'm going to fix myself <laughs> right there. Especially if I'm talking to an, um, an English major uh, with a master's degree. I meant pro- uh, proca- procrastinator. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so I just had to, you know, d- defend myself as, as an English teacher of my own. Anyways, but yeah, that, that, that just. <laughs> That sounds like the funniest thing. So in every search engine, you should probably write for a book or for a yes. comic right at the end of every search that you do. <laughs> just Absolutely. to kind of like cover yourself just a little bit. <laughs> okay, so you're, so you're looking – so you were, you learned how to fight like a KG, KGB agent based on your special Russian spy who I'm sure Putin's totally okay with. And you do Muay Thai fighting on your own. How yeah. close how, – how close – are these are like our style? Did you figure out that hey, I, I can kind of get a sense of how this works because I already have experience as a fighter, you know, skilled fighter. Yeah, yeah. So that was, I mean, that was kind of interesting because I think that's one of the th- things that Jan pointed out to me was like, I I do write a lot of these fight scenes or choreograph whether it's the pyrosaurus or anything. I'm kind of using a lot of my own knowledge of fight skills, and I was a teacher, I was an instructor for a long time, and a coach, so. I really like getting to use that knowledge set. And one thing that, that Jan pointed out to me, he was like, this is too clean. Like, you know, this in real life or for these, these agents, like, you know, this isn't so much a chess match, like what you might see on, I was watching James Bond the other day, actually. So some of that is very clean and choreographed. Agents are trained to see every item around them as weapons and to go in for like certain pressure points or hit points. So that was kind of cool getting to be a little bit creative with like, okay, now this cup of coffee is a deadly weapon kind of thing. So, <laughs> um, that was definitely a little bit of a departure from, I think how I write fight scenes, just because again, I'm pulling from very traditional <laughs> like uh, Muay Thai or Judo or Jiu Jitsu things that I've trained in. So obviously I think, you know, we pull from our own experiences and, and it was really nice getting to learn kind of something that opened up, I think how I write and choreograph violence <laughs> so, so, so that was really cool so now you can totally john wick somebody with like a pencil yes. and a book and all sorts of fun <laughs> ways <laughs> yeah actually it is a little bit more john wick-esque like you know how he's always using whatever's around or you know the legend of him killing somebody with the pencil it was a lot more like that and it was something that i just don't think i had considered for my own fight scene so it was it was definitely helpful and something that i i hope to continue using so, it, so, so you are going to um, take that style and, and use it uh, beyond that into, like, say, like Artemis. You'll start seeing maybe doing more KGB style fighting, and you'll see more of you know some of the other stuff as well. So Artemis, I mean, Artemis is done at this point. Hopefully, we get to write more of it. You know, I again with everything being stalled, things are so up in the air. I think it's going to come down to characterization you know we're writing in the book about former russian agents and operatives so it fits really well for them meanwhile we have somebody like artemis who in the story especially as we see her develop both virginia hall who her code name is artemis virginia hall is very classically trained by european fight styles and then we have somebody like the made-up assassin maya who has a pretty clean cut cut training though she's got some supernatural abilities in there so some of that will will probably change her fight style as well she she's more of a uh, fight to kill kind of person there's very little room for excessive damage she's like you know what is the (laughs) fastest way to kill this person is kind of her outlook whereas you know if an agent is trying to extract information they might be looking more for the pain angle or just incapacitate or what what whatever their their goal is so 
but yeah, it's, it's something I think about a lot because I'm interested and I like studying fight styles and techniques. So being able to choreograph those and bring them into the characters and, and kind of give that as part of the character's personality, yeah. I think a really cool element for me, and it helps as somebody that, you know, has retired from the ring, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is, it's, there are days that I struggle with that. Like, you know, I, for me fighting, it's like a chess game. So I, I miss that. I miss the flow. I miss what it feels like to step into the ring. So being able to channel some of that into, you know, whatever fight style or personality this character needs in the scene is, you know, a really good way for, I think, me to continue using those skills and thinking about the the kind of game element to fighting. That, that's really cool. Like I, said, I never thought of using fighting as a tool of characterization before. And it's fascinating that because you do have that experience and thinking like that, you already are, in, you know, infusing that into your character, which I think is just incredible. It's probably one reason why, like I said, you're so popular right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that the reason? I thought it was. I'm, 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 sure that, I'm sure there's multiple reasons, but I'm sure that's um, in added detail, most certainly. But yeah, no, that, that's that's really cool. So you said you're finished writing Artemis. Butcher of Paris is already set with your. You've already wrote the the first story, and it's yes. basically finished. Are pencils down in any of your other um, books, or are you still f- uh, free writing on all of them? no pencils down on any of them actually i've signed in the past few weeks i think i've signed two or three new projects so i feel really fortunate you know i see friends and and people like that that are kind of getting that that pencils down order and you know it's frightening it's it's kind of a a weird time to be in comics and to to hear that especially from big name publishers like marvel so you know I'm, i'm glad that we do have somebody that we can kind of look to whether it's dc or Aftershock or TKO, some of these publishers that are really trying to find a new way for us to really interact with our comics, with our retailers, with our publishers. So it's it's going to be an interesting time to see how this kind of develops moving forward. You know, DC's got their new distribution methods. They say they're going to start <laughs> having new books on the shelf. What is it, twenty seventh or twenty eighth? So yeah, that'll be that'll be really cool to see. I, I don't imagine. I mean, I know where where I live in, in Rhode Island. The stores are not allowed to be open, the comic book store. Mm-hmm. So I don't know who they're distributing to, but if the stores aren't <laughs> open, it doesn't help yeah. anybody. <laughs> we have, I, I know in New York, we have a lot of places doing curbside pickup. So maybe at least for the stores that are doing curbside, maybe it'll be like a like a helpful thing for them to have some new product to push for, for people that are trying to do something like that. I know there's a shop in Florida where my parents live that's doing this really cool like remote shopping. So you actually like zoom call into the shop and you yeah. have a personal shopper that like goes oh. around the store with you digitally and you pick oh, out what awesome. you want. Yeah. And then they like, so like you pay digitally and then you have a little package outside and you go pick it up. So you never have to interact with anyone. So um, <laughs> that yeah. is super cool. <laughs> and and they, they should keep that going after the pandemic's over. Cause just the whole idea of not interacting with anyone. sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is your like, target demographic for that kind of thing like if i don't have to interact i'm happy though i have to say like my my local comic shop you know i i genuinely do like interacting with them and talking with them so going in i i wish i made it every week but you know about once a month i go in and i get a giant stack of books and i i love that or my parents go my parents actually go to a comic shop probably more than i do which i find lovely uh you know (laughs) mostly they're just buying my books but i i appreciate that they go in and they support their local comic shop and they don't just steal all my comps which is is cool (laughs) (laughs) that that is awesome (laughs) so you were your parents were comic buyers 
potentially before you were a writer no. or no, no okay <laughs> it's new to them which is uh you know it's really cool so they really don't know anything about the world of comics beyond yeah. you know helping me you know i loved batman as a kid so they bought me a batman costume or whatever it is or when i wanted a comic they were really supportive and would buy comics for me so i got lucky in that regard because they they know nothing about <laughs> what is going on and so when my mom started you know trying to find books of mine there are a couple things that i just you know sometimes you don't always receive a lot of comps or in some cases like i've done things like receive comps and then donate them to some kind of charity thing so unfortunately i, I sometimes forget to send things to my mom <laughs> so <laughs> she was getting mad at me and she was like you're supposed to give me books and i was like i know you're right i'm, I'm so sorry but she found a local comic shop near her and she goes every week and um, like we were kind of talking about this like interaction element and just, you know, for somebody that has never been to a comic store, doesn't, has never owned a comic that doesn't have my name on it. She's yeah. found this kind of community in this comic shop. Like she loves going in, she spends time there and then she'll always call me afterwards and like knows all the the workers by name. And she'll be like, yeah, you know, you'll never guess what so-and-so told me today or what they said about the industry. So like, she really <laughs> likes keeping up with what's going on in, in my world and through her own little community aspect there. So I'm, I'm really excited that she's gotten so into something like that. That's nice. Very supportive parents you've got there. You, you're yeah. extremely lucky. <laughs> they, they try. <laughs> There's sometimes the feedback is like, like they just read the first issue of a man among you, which is going out to print and uh, they read it, read it digitally. And of course my mom was like, why is this character spitting so much? <laughs> I was like, so that's all you have to say about the issue. She's like, yeah, it's gross. <laughs> I was like, Okay. <laughs> That, 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 Thanks, that's, Mom. A, that's a good blurb for the, the the first page of your comic book. Like, <laughs> right. comments, fits too much. Yes. I want those to be the testimonials on the back of the trade paperback. Why is there so much spitting? <laughs> God, if you did that, that'd be the coolest damn uh, testimonial of all time. I would be very happy to put only testimonials from my family members on the books. <laughs> <laughs> that, see, now that you said you have to do it. I'm gonna I mean, hold you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So these, so these also supported you as a comic book buyer as a kid. And which ones? Which ones were you buying? I, I was just really into Batman, the animated series, which I think for you know my generation, for any of us that ended up being pretty into the cape and cowl, we I think a lot of us found that in the animated series. Which you know for me, the minute I saw that, I it was over. <laughs> I would sit yeah. in front of the TV every day and just reenact you know scenes of Batman saving Robin or whatever was going on. And then when I discovered that like. This wasn't, this continued beyond being like, I can go buy Batman books and just keep getting more Batman. I was like, what <laughs> is this? This is magic. So yeah, I was, I was really excited to learn that. I don't think I was buying anything like chronologically. I was a little kid and I would just see Batman on the cover of something and get super excited and buy it. So, um, not, not like a real collector, but just, you know, I had my interests and from there, I think I got really into Robin as a kid. And I think part of that was being a kid kind of identifying with the younger sidekick um, was kind of cool. And then I think one of the first things I, I did as a, as a kid, like I did own a run of some of a Robin series that I yep. think I still have. So, I, I have um, them too. Yeah. You know, stuff that's not worth a whole lot today, but just for me personally, I'll probably never get rid of that. So yeah, I was a big, big DC reader because if it appeared in the Batman comics, then I was getting like a good dose of like th whatever the character was doing and I wanted to know more and I'd go find them in other books. So yeah, they, they were totally fine with me reading comics. They liked it. I thought it was really cool to have them. And I was reading 
reading nonstop anyways. So it was just kind of another thing that made it onto its to my to read pile as a kid. <laughs> Well, like I said, I, I totally um, agree with you. When when I was a, a kid, I ni- '90s Batman anime series, I loved it. I actually, I mean, even I was a little older, like maybe 13 when it came out, but I, I thought it was <laughs> phenomenal. And uh, you know, eventually with uh, Superman animated, and then Justice League. I mean, I, I, yeah. Well, what they were doing there was just genius. And then with comic books, yeah, I mean, was it the Chuck Dixon? I think was doing the, the early Robin mm-hmm. comic books when he had regular series. That, that was, I loved it better actually than regular series. Something about Tim Drake was just a fantastically in- interesting character. Right. And. Yeah. Also, Azrael. I also was buying him at the time as well from, from Batman. <laughs> Very cool. So you took your love for comic books and you got a master's degree of English in the at the University of South um, Florida. Mm-hmm. But what drove you? Was it comic books that made you get, build that or start that love of literature for you? Um, I don't think so much comics. I mean, uh, it's I I actually am doing uh, comics. Kind of play a big factor in the. I'm working on my dissertation right now for my PhD and. There's an element of it that actually is about comics because I do a lot of visual rhetoric. So I look at things like logos and the life cycle of imagery as we put it out into the world and how we interact with images. And for me, that plays a huge role in how we interact with comic books. Like we're talking about a very visual medium that tells stories graphically. And I think that's I I actually am really kind of a process junkie in terms of wanting to look at that and talk to artists about it. So at some point I got to talk to couple people in in the community for my dissertation which is kind of a cool way of double dipping while trying to write a bunch of comic books and write like a 500 page dissertation so (laughs) 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 but initially I went into English so I have my undergrad and my master's degree are in English and then I have another master's degree in technical communication um, and I teach tech comm to engineers so I have like a really weird way that I go about bringing writing to like STEM communications field. And I do a lot of data visualization with my students and things like that. So it kind of all makes its way full circle back to talking about like visualizing comics and how the images impact the reader and the audience and things like that. And, and I just love that. I think it's a really cool, fascinating component to what we do and it makes it all function as a cohesive story and if you aren't thinking about those things then there's probably something disjointed about it so you know I like to always try to be really aware of how what I'm doing interacts with the colors and the line work and things like that throughout throughout the book that, that's so let's see you're you're a PhD candidate you're teaching courses you're writing about a thousand comic books a month are you <laughs> sleeping at all <laughs> uh, that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. Somebody asked on like some one of the publishers had me do this like AMA thing, and somebody was like, "How do you write the comics and a dissertation?" And I was like, "When I figure it out, I will be sure to let you know. Like, you'll be the first one to know." <laughs> you know, it's it's trial and error a lot of the times. Like, you know, my time is pretty, I guess, really tightly organized in terms of like how much time I can spend on on a given task, and you know where. I prioritize. The lucky thing for me is that I usually don't teach in the summers. So I try to, I try to balance everything out or, you know, sometimes my office hours, if students don't show up, which is literally always students never want to come to office hours. (laughs) I get to kind of use my office hours as like, all right, here's two hours of honestly uninterrupted time. (laughs) So I can kind of write there as well. So yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely time management. I often fail at it. I try my best, and uh, <laughs> I'm just lucky that people kind of keep wanting me around in the comic industry, so I'll keep making books as long as people keep letting me. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume you're remote teaching then, your PhD course. Your, your courses that you're teaching are remote, I assume? 
Right now, yes. Yeah. I teach at University of Buffalo and everything went digitally a few weeks ago. So it's it's been a bit of a challenge. I've taught online classes before, but sometimes teaching a writing class, like, I mean, the real hard thing is giving feedback, which, you know, as a writer, I get feedback all the time from people I've never met and I get it digitally. But I also feel like there's something to be said for having a conversation about the piece, like being able to talk with my students about like, what was your intent here? So we can figure out like, <laughs> the best way to communicate that. So, you know, there's definitely something missing and I love my students. So it's sad that I probably won't see them again since I most, mostly teach uh, seniors. So teaching digitally is, but at least it's giving me more time at home to, to kind of reorganize that schedule and do a lot more writing. So, so, so are you there's an upside. So are you, are you finding being at home is that, are you finding it with this lockdown you're able to concentrate more because you have more time or are you finding it more distracting to be at home this often? I think I'm getting used to it a bit more, but it's been, it's been tough. I think a lot of, I've been talking to a lot of other like writers and artists as well. And I think a lot of us are feeling this like real collective anxiety. And for the first few weeks, I definitely spent most of my time playing video games, which is unusual for me. Like I, you know, I'm working all the time. So to just be able to like not, put my mind into a story at all like <laughs> like my mind was just blank like it's just pure anxiety what's going on in the world <laughs> um like just wake up to like constant dread of like oh man like what has happened today so that it was definitely really hard to work for the first few weeks and i wouldn't say it's gotten easier but it's also one of those things where it's like this is my job i have to i have to work with my students i have to turn in a script i still have deadlines and you know i also try to think like during this time, I'm really lucky to still have work. So I don't want to, I don't want to take that for granted. So I, I want to still try to figure out a way to put my mind in the space that it needs to be in to create. So um, working on it, work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> so when, how are you getting, like when, when you're ready to enter, let's say, um, Butcher of Paris, mm -hmm. when, when you're writing it, how are you and doing Artemis, especially in the current situation, what are you doing to, let's say, reset maybe is the best term for it and get um, it back into their mind with everything else going on right right is eating a full lasagna in the shower a bad answer <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's gotta be a messy right answer <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely getting there i mean at least right now or you know i can take i can talk a little bit better to like in normal cases, if I'm stuck on things, what I try to do is fill my brain with the kinds of things that make me excited to be a creator. And I would say probably the first few weeks of our quarantine, I was not doing a great job of that. I mean, you know, I was playing video games and I was consuming content, but I don't think I was really thinking or being active about the content that I was engaging with. So I have like some staples of movies that I keep on my computer that it's like, if I'm, if I'm feeling down, if I'm not feeling like I'm in the headspace to work, Usually I can kind of jumpstart that. So last night, like I watched, I've seen Casino Royale a million times, but it's one of those movies that I put on. I can say the lines and I get so into it that I'm like, <laughs> uh, I'll pause it at certain points because I'm just like, wow, that still frame is just gorgeous. Like the whole frame <laughs> of this scene. Like, I mean, I'm such a nerd, but I mean, something like that or Tombstone, which I think my Twitter followers have figured out I've got like, a bit of a weird obsession with that oh, movie. Tombstone's an um, absolute classic. <laughs> it's it's definitely. I think it's my my favorite movie tied with Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I mean, any of this stuff that I've, I'm consuming and being like reminded of, like this is why I'm a creator. Like 
I could yeah. only hope to one day achieve what like Casino Royale is doing or these other films that I just love. Like I, I'm not there and, and I just love it though. I want to study it. I want to be a part of it. And it kind of reignites something for me. So, so right now I'm spending a lot of time and I'm also kind of trying to forgive myself for spending a lot of time <laughs> consuming more material than I think I normally do. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a weird time for everybody and I'm, I'm excited to kind of, try to take the opportunity to read more comics than I normally would. I got a co- some kind of comicsology pass, which I normally don't read digital comics. And yeah. I have been, I've been trying to like get it in my mind that like every night we're going to stop writing or doing whatever I'm doing at around nine o'clock at night. And then um, I give myself like a chance to, to read some content, get real excited about like, Oh man, this person's writing this amazing comic. I'm, I'm so excited for them. And like, so jealous of this creation, like tomorrow yeah. I get to write a comic, like <laughs> putting myself kind of in that mindset as much as possible. Oh, well, no, I can ever blame you for watching tombstone. Me and my wife was very lucky uh, last year. We got a Val Kimmer autograph uh, at, at Trificon, and we were so excited that, that we were against. It's, it's literally on my wall with some sticky. So, yeah, we have we were able to get Val Kimmer. And it's on his uh, Doc Holiday uh, uh, picture. Yeah. And oh. then he signed, um, I'm your Huckleberry. We were, we were very, we were yes. very excited. That's <laughs> so cool. I collect Doc Holiday artwork. So, if I work with an artist or if it's just an artist I love, I will usually go out of my way to make sure I get a commission of Doc from them. So, I've got. I've got a weird collection of just different artists' interpretations of the Val Kilmer Doc Holiday from Tombstone. So, okay, Val Kilmer, um, you're, you're not just random um, Doc Holidays, like from Wyatt Earp or, you know. Nope, no, I, I go specific Tombstone. I like the Val Kilmer interpretation of it. I think it was his best role. I think it's the best interpretation of Doc. I love it. And that's usually kind of the route I go in when I ask an artist. So everybody's been down. I've got some really, really cool ones from like Dan Panosian. Brian Stelfreeze was my most recent one. Um, i trying to think of, I've got Tom Rainey. It's, it's some cool stuff. So <laughs> I love those. Yeah, and I must admit, and I, I was really amazed with just how accurate the movie apparently was with Doc Holliday, which um, when I saw, saw the movie originally, um, I came out when it came out, it came out like mid-90s, I think, so I was like maybe 15, 16 when it came out. I was like, well, you know, it was entertaining, but it's like a little like an action movie, and I started doing a little research on Doc Holliday, like, it got the history much closer than um, I thought it would ever, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I guess I remember the story um, that I read that Doc Holliday, I think literally you know, he killed somebody during a, a card game with like a knife, <laughs> like faster than the guy was even able to pull the trigger. And I was like, damn right. it, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. And there's some cool stuff too. Like I, I, I like studying what directors and writers are doing for that stuff. And it's really cool to have so much information about when Kurt Russell took over directing parts of that movie, some of the information about like what he choices he made as a director, it's kind of cool to read some of that background information as well. So, I mean, that's definitely in one of my movie lists of just, I don't know, it might be like a weird list, but it's something that I can always kind of go to as like, this is, this is something that will like jumpstart and trigger the creative process for me. Now, now, do you have any desire to write a old West comic book, like maybe like a Jonah Hex type thing mm-hmm. at any point or? Yes. Yes. yes, I think Jonah Hex would be a great character. I mean, in some ways, I I think, I mean, Artemis and the Assassin, as it unfolds, I think some people will see there's a lot of elements of a Western in it. And I've tried to play a lot with elements of, like, what makes a good Western 
story. Like some of these, like, you know, the lone uh, ranger kind of appeal to the story, which we might be seeing a little bit in Tarna that I'm writing. So, you know, I think when you talk about a writer, like you have to talk about what influences them. And then you see those influences quite a bit in their work. And uh, I'm pretty heavily influenced by, by Westerns. So that will pop up. But I would love the chance to write a straight Western. Like, you know, sometimes I get off track. And I'm like, well, maybe audience would love a Western werewolf or something. But, <laughs> but then in my mind, it's like, well, what do I want to write? And I, right, I right. kind of want to bring it back to like, I want to write a Western. And I think that would be great. And I do love Jonah Hex. Like that is, that's definitely one of those characters along with Wildcat that I got the opportunity to write already. But those two, Ted Grant, Jonah Hex, I think are two characters that that fit me really well. Oh yeah, Palmiati, uh, Jim Palmiati and uh, Justin mm-hmm. Gray did a fantastic job with Jonah Hex yes. on, on the run. Oh, absolutely. The run. How about like, do you watch the old movies as well, like High Noon and I'm trying to remember the one with Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne? It's gonna uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. You watch the old ones as well, or are you talking about more like recent? Yeah. Um, um, no, I, I've watched some old ones. I mean, Tombstone has always been the one that stuck out to me, just probably because of timing as well. Like you know, sometimes things you see as a kid that kind of get really ingrained in your memory. But no, I like I like new, I like old. I think the most recent one I watched was Bone Tomahawk, if we could call it that, like Western <laughs> horror story. So of course, you know, you see Kurt Russell, and it's like, I'm in. <laughs> but I didn't know what I was watching. And then, like, I'm not going to give it away for anybody that has not seen the entire movie. The ending of that movie is still to this day, like, I am not squeamish at all. <laughs> I was kind of sick to my stomach there. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's the most recent one I've watched. I mean, I'll always go out and, and try to find new ones if I haven't seen them. But, you know, it doesn't really matter to me. I, I'll give new ones a shot. I'll rewatch some of the old ones, black and white. I'm, I'm up for it. I like it all. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if, DC, if DC is listening, Jonah Hex, Stephanie Phillips, make it happen. <laughs> Oh, that would be very cool. <laughs> well, they, they should. I mean, they, they haven't brought the character back in his own title for a little while. They had also they had yeah. what uh, All Star Western or something like that. Maybe yes, their yeah. New Fifty Two, but I think that ended in like what five issues, ten issues, something like that. It, it didn't last right. long. So yeah, yeah so yeah. they got so they got to bring it back. But what I think is also fantastic about a lot of the stories that you're writing is that it is so historically based and so researched. Sort of like uh, like we we mentioned earlier, like Butcher of Powers, which I'm reading and I'm absolutely loving. Oh, thank you. Especially because, you know, I, I really like um, World War II. It's a fascinating time period. Especially, you know, someone who also is, also is Jewish, I do find that in- the period very interesting and scary, but, you know, interesting, obviously, as well. Right. And so I guess one question I had, when did you come across that story of Butcher of Paris? So I came across it years ago, actually. I was... I was reading something on, like, a digital book about World War II, and there was this it was I was on a chapter about the occupation of Paris and there was kind of a just a really offhand comment like after the trial of this serial killer that had been active all throughout the occupation and then it kind of moved on and I was like wait a minute like <laughs> you can't just dangle that out there and then just like not follow it up so I, I started looking into it like you know I think everybody's first impulse of like googling it and then I started finding a lot of conflicting information so I mean, you can Google him and a lot of that conflicting information, as I've learned, is just because he's never admitted to these crimes, there's so little that anybody knows in terms of, you know, these bodies that have disappeared. For some people, they're like, you know, did this guy kill my husband or was my husband taken by the Gestapo? Like, it's such a weird time period to try to think about and parse out, like, blame. 
name for something like that, that it gets really tricky to look at a serial killer. And that's exactly what made him so devious and opportunistic during that time period. So I started doing a lot of research. I found every book I could that was about him or mentioned him and, you know, kind of following people's research trails, going to their bibliographies and kind of working backwards and things like that to, to build the story. So the story is very much based in it. It does try to be as historical as possible. At times when people are speaking in the story, it's English translations of things they said in either newspaper articles or court documents. So tried to be very, <laughs> tried to bring a lot of that into them. But then at the same time, it's, you know, five issues at about 20 pages each. The final issue, we went a little bit longer than that to give like a little bit more of, of kind of the conclusion here. So it's a bit of a bigger issue, but still, it's not all of the room that I think I would need to tell like a full on historical story about this, this killer. So, so there's definitely more of a fictitious storyline running about like the chase for him, but everything else is going on. All the people, all of this is actually historically centered. So detective, am I pronouncing that? Masu is my, mm-hmm. am I pronouncing it right? Masu. Yes. Is, so he was a real person or no? Yes, he was. And the storyline with his son, that's actually real as well. His son was a law student and often would accompany him on cases and kind of serve as like a sounding board. So they had, a, as far as I can tell, they had a very close relationship. And that's something that I really loved. I, I thought this idea was so unique about like this, this is real. Like this guy during the occupation was trying to continue his line of work while, you know, not getting captured by the Gestapo, not kind of crossing lines with them. And still doing his duty to the French people. And then at the same time, he's trying to be a father to his son that's, you know, trying to be a law student, trying to continue normalcy in a time period that was anything but normal. So I really wanted to focus at the center of that on a relationship between a father and son. Yeah. And I mean, what I found most fascinating, I think, about The Butcher of Paris is the analysis or the idea of a serial killer during a period of mass genocide. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, and the, the idea of almost analyzing what is maybe, maybe more evil, which one are we more afraid of the individuals, this strange serial killer who's doing these horrible things, or in many ways, that r- soldier who in all other aspects, maybe a regular person who is in as many ways, a serial killer on their own, but it's like sanctioned serial killing. You know what I'm saying? Right. For, for yeah. let's say for the Nazis. And I think it was, it was, it was interesting to see like, I guess in many ways, like what do you consider worse, you know, or the more like evil, the, the individual killer or did, or did you look, or well, that was part of your analysis as well. The individual killer versus the genocide going around him. Right. I mean, I think that's a really difficult question for a lot of reasons. And I think one of the reasons this story ended up being so fascinating is you do have this, this killer in the midst of perhaps a larger, we could probably call them serial killers too. So um, in the midst of a larger collection of these serial killers, and they're also chasing him, like the Nazis also wanted him. So in part of this, there's a race between the French detective and the Nazis to be the first to find him because they don't entirely know what's going on. Is he also a Nazi? Is he a resistance fighter? You know, at at the end of the day, he was kind of helping the Nazi cause, though he he didn't really prescribe to their ideology. It was more about opportunity for him. So also, and we'll see this a little bit more at the con- conclusion of the series, I really wanted to think through empathy as well and what it means to have somebody that killed possibly 200 people 
But then you look at the larger numbers that are associated with deaths in World War II, you know, over 6 million Jews, and that's not counting soldiers on the battlefield and other casualties. That's a huge figure. So for a group of people that are watching family members disappear and die on a daily basis, to then have to sit in a courtroom and condemn somebody that killed 200 it's like how they're almost measuring these lives as like, well, that's not a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, as yeah. you know, D D Detective Masu will kind of be that voice to re remind them of whether it's one or a million. Like, what? How do we value human lives? Uh, lives and how we make those judgment calls, how we feel empathy. That's how we define ourselves as a community and as individuals. So. That's something that we'll see a lot more of in the end of the book, which is kind of asking some of the bigger questions about how he fits into the history and the larger figures going on at the time period. Yeah, it's just interesting, especially when you, that you said that the Nazis, you know, the Nazis are hunting him down as well. It's odd to think that mm -hmm. a group of people who have concentration camps that systematically are murdering, you know, thousands, you know, like an assembly line almost is looking at a serial killer going, <laughs> we got to get that guy. That's the bad guy right there. It's like. I mean, right. it, that's a weird mental dissidence right there. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely different to study that kind of thing. It's difficult to study, obviously. But hopefully at the end of the day, too, I found kind of an interesting way to package a story that's very historically based, that's very heavily researched, but give it to maybe a popular audience and not an audience that's out there looking for, like, something that contains footnotes, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I dig that kind of thing, but... You know, the larger lesson of what we're talking about in this story and the kinds of ways that I want my audience to interact with history, I think made this format really fun and interesting to work with because you're able to develop the story around a couple of individual human figures. So instead of looking at the much larger situation, I really tried to zoom in as much as possible <laughs> and say, like, how does a normal person interact and react to this situation? Like, how does a father and son deal with this? How does a woman that perhaps lost her husband deal with this? Like, kind of looking at those personal sides to it in a way that at least none of the history books I read were doing. And that's not, you know, a slight against them. That wasn't the genre convention that they were using. So right. it's, it's definitely something more, you know, I think a lot more about like I talked kind of about some movies that influenced me and as a writer, I really like Eric Larson, not Savage Dragon. Eric Larson is kind of funny. There's two. <laughs> He's a historical writer. He does nonfiction, but his nonfiction reads like fiction. It's just so smooth and you care so much about what he's talking about because he hones in. So, you know, instead of just looking at larger, you know, Germany during World War II, he wrote a book about the U.S. ambassador who was in Germany with his family during World War II, which is fascinating, like something I had never thought about. So, you know, making these things feel very real by making you feel connected to these individuals. And that's something that, you know, I think he's such a master at. And, and, you know, I hope to one day achieve even close to what Eric does in some of those, those works. I'm going to call him Eric, like we're good personal. <laughs> I would love to meet him one day, but he, he's definitely a really big, I, I don't know, role model is the right word, but an inspiration for what I do in comics. Now, when, when writing, I mean, obviously the, the, the writing trope is always from, from a writer. They always say, you know, a, when you're writing a villain, you know, the villain is a hero in their own mind or a villain thinks they're doing the right thing. When you're writing someone like, um, I'm going to probably pronounce it wrong, Pediat, am I anywhere close? Um, I, so my understanding from my horrible AP French that I took for years <laughs> is that it's Patois, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm sure somebody, in, 
that that is what I have been told, and okay. based on what I understand from French. But I'm sure somebody in France is like cringing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if they cringe at pity they, they, or whatever, they, they they probably definitely cringe when when I try pronouncing it my way. Oh, fine. <laughs> so, but um, anyways, for our, we're gonna, or let's just call him Mr. P. Um, sure. When Mr. When running Mr. P, you absolutely did you try to come up with. The idea, you know, the whole he's a hero in his own mind kind of thing or some, some, some sympathetic aspect or because he's a serial, serial killer, like, were you not able to get quite there with him and had to write it in a different right. approach? I, uh, I mean, I, I'll speak personally. I don't think there's much sympathetic about this figure at all. I do go into some of his backstory a little bit in issue two, and I've had some people message me like, oh, is this your attempt to humanize him? Like he's, he is a human. These are all human elements to his psychology. I am not a psychologist. I have had no training in this area to make any kind of judgment about his psyche. But, you know, you can see, and I've mentioned it in the comic as well, that he's, he's had a troubled past since he was a little kid. And he's done some, some of the very classic things you hear about in movies or, or books or on any of that where he's like torturing animals or, you know, he brought weapons to school when he was like really young, something like 10 or 12, torturing classmates, I, just really horrible stuff since the time he was a child. And I, I don't want this book to get into any kind of debate about nature or nurture or his psychology. I think, and other people have made the argument as well, that there are people that have had troubled past which i'm not sure his his home life counts as troubled he as these accounts give us he did not have a horrific home life so there, there's interesting stuff there i'm sure for a psychologist to study in my, my book he's not sympathetic and i am not sympathetic to him in the same way that i would not be sympathetic to a nazi like i everything that they have done whether they fired the gun or pulled a lever or arrested somebody or they just stood by and watched i think all of that is just as bad it makes you just as complicit and one of the things i kind of am interested in looking at is what it means to be complicit in something and i think it's a really interesting time period currently for us to think about that so i opened or i'm, I'm sorry i closed issue number one of butcher with an ellie wazell quote he wrote the book night and he was a holocaust survivor and i was Luckily, I got to meet him before he passed away. He actually worked at one of the first colleges I attended and really, really uh, interesting figure to meet and get to talk to. Even if our personal interaction was very limited, he spoke to my, my class briefly. And so his whole point and his justification for a lot of his talks and education was about you know, if you, in times of uncertainty or in times of violence, if you are just on the sidelines and you say you're not taking a side, you've taken a side. Yeah, um, yeah. So that makes you complicit. That That's something that he finds just as evil as the man pulling the trigger, if that makes sense. So, um, oh, it totally makes sense. Yeah, when I, well, I, I teach, like I said, um, I, I'm a teacher right now at a high school. We, every year mm -hmm. I teach night. And it's a, it's a phenomenal book. And I, I'm actually talking to um, Eli Wiesel's son about talking to the class oh. as well about his wow. father. Because obviously I missed out on talking to the man himself, unfortunately. Right, which, right. So I'm envying you quite a bit of being able to chat with him. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> um, Incredible Man is, is, a, is and that's a great book as well. And, mm -hmm. I, and I do think the idea that there could be someone who is evil on their, you know, just evil in some, some sense, sense, I think is quite possible. You know, and I don't think you always do need to find the you know sympathy you know, the compassion or some sympathy for an individual but like mm -hmm. no some people just are you know 
yeah. or just bad and people. And that's fine if other people want to study him. I completely understand that motivation as well, because in the very brief period of time, I took some psychology classes and um, criminal behavior classes. Like, I mean, I can speak to nothing other than being an undergrad fascinated by those like intro level classes, but I absolutely understood. And what I got from those was that you should be studying those things. Helping us determine and understand human behavior is incredibly important from any point in history. My attempt in this book is not to do that. I am not interested in the human. I'm interested in his actions and how they cause ripple effects and how they, how they caused reactions from the people around him and the history happening around him. So we actually don't see him very much in the story, and that's very intentional. I'm not interested in the gore either. So there's a couple of scenes where we see a little bit of blood or insinuation of what he's done, but I'm also not interested in showing the hundreds of bodies that he apparently accumulated in his wake. That's that's also not the purpose of the book, so I didn't want it to be incredibly gory. Even though I'm positive Dean Kotz could draw an incredible sawed-off arm, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that really wasn't our intention with the story. Well, I mean, obviously your more interesting character is Detective Masu. I pronounce. I think I pronounced. Yeah, pronounced that one right. Yeah, yeah. I talked to Masu, and I think one of the interesting things that um, happens in your series with him is in issue four, he's he's arrested for being an SS contact, based mm-hmm. on what Robert Jockum. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Jockum. It yep. basically says about or accuses him of being an SS contact. So one thing that popped in my brain from once again the idea of psychology. Why do you think they were so readily? Um, willing to believe what Robert Jockham just said instead of, you know, maybe looking further into it, they just kind of immediately took what his word sounds like and he got arrested. Right. So, I mean, at the time, this is actually uh, something that happened throughout Paris, this like wave of paranoia. And I mean, it almost sounds a little bit like McCarthyism. <laughs> like, yeah. are you a communist? <laughs> like, <laughs> let's root out the communist living next door. Like, it doesn't matter how well you know somebody they could have been complicit, like they could have been helping the Nazis. So there was a lot of that that happened, which is we can never let this happen again. And we have to go so far to the extreme of finding everybody that ever like gave a stick of gum to a Nazi (laughs) unknowingly, like that kind of detail. And, you know, obviously our, our main Nazi that we follow in the book does not have a good relationship with our detective. So though he knew he, he, what his end was going to be, he wanted to throw this guy under the bus with him. And Masu historically was arrested for, possible collusion with the Nazis. Of course, all of this was found to be unfounded, but he was actually arrested and uh, removed from his position on the basis that some people said he may have colluded. And I think part of that is he's working in the same department, but Detective Masu made a choice, I believe, which was if he stepped down when the Gestapo came and took power, he would have been leaving the city completely open to the rule of the Gestapo. But if he kept his position and tried to maintain some kind of balance, at least there was somebody here that was looking out for his people. Like, he wasn't just abandoning them. He was doing what he could when he could. And I, I think he really deliberately made that choice to kind of be that person that wasn't working with them, but trying to work for his people. And he knew that he could better serve them while still in his position versus sitting at home. So he's a really interesting person. And I think like, you know, I'd, I'd love to write even more about him. He's really fascinating to me, but unfortunately that is kind of part of what happened in, in Masu's journey. He was um, thought to be a collaborator and he was arrested for it. 
I mean, I, I think what's so fascinating about reading Virtual Paris as well is not just it was historical, but things that happened to the characters like Masu and the issues that face, you know, that sort of surround it do seem to work so well as almost an allegory for what's happening now or in other moments of history. And talking about things like the like the press, you have the scene in issue four with Dr. Mas, uh, Mas, uh, Detective Masu is talking to uh, Monjour Martin, mm-hmm. Monjour Martin, about putting the murders on the front page. And the guy's like, no, that's not as interesting. We want celebration on the front page. And the idea of, you know, the the commentary I think on the meat on the media on whether or not what's more important, you know, some ideas, sensationalism, selling the papers, or maybe something that's maybe more in, important to solving or helping lives. Right. Uh, was that an intentional commentary you were making or just another thing that happened? It's a little of both. So, I, I mean, obviously what's happening in this book is, I don't want to go so far as to say hyperbolic, but I am also creating characters from what I've read on a page and usually that page is historical so we're getting characters that are not imbued with a lot of energy of any kind so you know creating the the head of the newspaper and things like that so this was something that Masu tried to do you know he was hoping to lure out this guy and kind of end this once and for all and he didn't get the support he needed you know somebody else decided their job and selling the paper was more important than Masu's job. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting conversation that they have that I think does relate to, you know, media today. And I, I found, I, I mean, it was also just kind of, for me, fun to add in a scene with newspapers because there are so many newspapers about these characters. So I was mm-hmm. like, I want a chance to add in some, <laughs> some like newspaper headlines and clippings and things like that like that to bring in a little bit more of that research so it's definitely twofold it's kind of a slight plot to to kind of what i'm saying about maybe media representation or just how difficult masu's job was like there's no support for him and what he's trying to do it's it's him and his son against it feels like everybody so it's something that you know brings him and bernard together but it's yeah definitely i I, i'm kind of glad you brought that up it's it was kind of an interesting scene to write and something I talked to Dean about, which is like, do we show a newspaper in this? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, the story of Detective Masu is just fascinating. I mean, you really did create a, a, a sort of on some level, maybe almost like a high noon feel to where you have, like I said, one guy versus everything. And you, you do, I mean, he's, he's in some ways a tragic character for consider what, what happened, at least from what's going to seem like what's going to happen to him. And I mean, do you ever, are you considering at all just writing a larger like novel about this character? I would love to write more about him. So, you know, obviously with things being up in the air about the industry at the moment, moving forward with some of those kinds of things would be, would be tough. But as if the situation presents itself, if I can make that happen, I would, I would absolutely continue writing him. And so issue five is going to be the last issue. It does. It's going to wrap everything up. Mm -hmm. Do we know when it's coming out? I feel like I was told it was delayed four weeks, so oh. it might be another two weeks or so before that's out. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's printed because I, I have it in my hands, but I'm not entirely sure when shops will get it. Yeah, like I said, it, it, I must admit, it was, just, it was just a beautiful series. I mean, it's well-written. The art is phenomenal. Dean, uh, how do you pronounce the last name? Kotz. Kotz. Was yeah? How, how did you find him? He is so. I mean, the art is so well done. Yes, I I definitely think Dean was. You know, he's the perfect choice for that. He. I was working with Dean on this book well before we were ever at Dark Horse as our publisher, and you know, I 
I think we just connected online and it was, you know, hey, I love your work. And I kind of pitched Dean the idea and he was immediately receptive and wanted to start working on some sample pages and things like that. And not long after, uh, Dark Horse was was invested and interested. So like my meeting with Dark Horse, uh, which I met with them in person at, at first, and it was interesting. I was like, I brought all this stuff to like sell them on the book. And yeah. it was more about him being like, well, here's the deal we can offer you. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> well, it's easier for me. So yeah, that sounds good. We're good. <laughs> but, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, it was very quick. It was like, here's what we can offer you. And we were like, okay. And I was like, oh, well, that was five minutes. I guess we're done. So <laughs> well, it must be nice yeah. to be at that point in your career where they're like, whatever you want to do, we trust, just do your, uh, do the thing we know you can do. I don't know that that's even the, the case i mean part of it i think is like you know dean's artwork is gorgeous anyone that sees that it's hard to be like well like i could write literally like i could write in klingon <laughs> and i think this book would still make sense and be gorgeous and i i definitely think that's a really cool element to it is that we've we have the perfect art team i mean dean jason's colors with some of that water coloring effect it's moody and it's exactly what we needed for the time period and for the characters just all of it is like the perfect combination of everything like firing on all cylinders like the best work that i i feel like i could give you and as well as the team too yeah i mean like i said this is that's one of those books butcher paris where i would love to see like the absolute edition of it like you know how they do absolute sandman books yeah. <laughs> you, you have to do like an absolute butcher of paris because it i mean it the it, it the art i mean the art does feel like something that would be in an exhibit each page feels that way yes. and the writing is phenomenal i think you did a great job with um, yeah, writing yeah. detective Ma uh, masu and i think you did a good job of showing the horrors of the murder without sensationalizing it at all and, and I, it was a great balance well thank you very much i appreciate that yeah i mean like it, it, you're, you're very welcome like i said obviously i enjoyed it another book I, i'm enjoying quite a bit is your artemis and the assassin mm -hmm. uh, with aftershock so did they come to you and say, can you write us a book for us? Or did you go to them and say, hey, I have an idea for you? I believe they came to me. So actually with Descendant, Artemis, Red Atlantis, all three of those. Aftershock is, at least from my understanding, I don't know that this is always the case, but they're very much invested in, in a creator, which I think is a really cool element, right? So they came to me and they were like, we're interested in developing something with you. Like, we like your voice. We want something that's for us. So, like, what are some of your ideas? Let's spitball. Let's kind of start creating some things. So Descendant was the first thing that I did with them. And then while I was still working on Descendant, they were interested in kind of finding something else with me. So that's how we kind of moved to Artemis and then uh, read Atlantis was, again, not completely my brainchild. Um, this was something I was kind of helping them develop along with, with Jan. And then I do have something else with, with Aftershock. <laughs> so I have, I have four books with Aftershock. And I, I think they're all like really different and unique and interesting. And I appreciate that they keep letting me take different approaches and trying out new things in the book. So when you say they develop a, a writer artist, what do you mean by developing? You know, they're um, sitting with you and like working on, you know, stories or craft or how's that working? Um, a little bit. So, I mean, I think something we have in the industry is this kind of like bake off where sometimes somebody will be like, we just want as many pitches as we can get. And we'll take one that, you know, has the nicest frosting or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel like if you and I, I don't think that's always wrong. I, you know, 
know, I've participated in these things and it's always nice to be invited to, to pitch and just the invitation alone really, it means a lot. It's nice. But at the end of the day, my preference is not feeling like I won a competition or lost a competition. I, gotcha. I prefer having somebody invest in me. Like we're going to tell this story right now. There's a blank page and we trust you to develop. So like you're on the project, let's develop. Like we trust your voice, we trust your vision, we trust your your skills. And having that kind of confidence, I think makes me a different writer because it know I, I, I know going into the project that I'm the person they want telling the story. Not like I got lucky and maybe wrote the correct buzzword in a pitch. <laughs> and I'm, right, I'm, right. Being, I'm being a little harsh here, but <laughs> like, I know it's not always that, but you know, in the past, again, some of that has, it, it, and if you do get that too, there's always a sense of like, well, here's the other people they turn down. Like, why am I writing this over? So like, like there's right, definitely, right. and maybe this is just me where I'm constantly like, why am I telling this instead of so-and-so? But, you know, for something like Tarna, I like, I, they picked, they said, we want you to write Tarna. Like day one, I didn't pitch them an idea. They came to me and they were like, we want you on this book and we're going to just kind of take this adventure together. And it really allowed me, I think, to open up. Like, I, I think it's the most time I have ever spent on an issue one script, like agonizing with this, these puzzle pieces and things that I know I want to fit. And like, what is this artist going to do here or things like that? It was, I think it almost changed my process a little bit to be given that kind of confidence from my editorial team. And that's something that I really appreciate. And the same with Aftershock. Like I know that they want me to tell the story and um, like they're willing to listen to me and work with me. And those are all things that are always appreciated in an editor and a publisher. Well, I mean, they're, they're putting out some fantastic content. I mean, a few, maybe a month ago, I, I talked to Cullen Bunn about Dark Arc. I mean, they do, their series are actually phenomenal. They look yeah. also fantastic. Absolutely. So where did Artemis and the Assassin come from in your, in your mind? So I guess kind of two different things that I put together. I was really interested in Virginia Hall as a historical figure. And I do a lot of historical stuff. So I was kind of interested in like, how can I change this up or push myself and do something a little, a little more unique than, than what I've been doing. And then also on the same token, I had this idea about these assassins that I wanted to write. And I was like, what if we literally have a story of meeting worlds? So my two stories are meeting just as well as these two characters, fictional and non-fictional, are meeting. And we can see what happens. Like, I, I want to know what happens when you put these two very dynamic, very different female badass characters in the same room. And just kind of let the story unravel around them and make them interact and deal with new situations. I like fish out of water stories, so I think this is... I mean, it's definitely fish out of water when you take <laughs> Virginia Hall out of World War II and throw her yep. in, you know, the Wild West or, or wherever. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun to work on. I mean, yeah, it, 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 I mean, it reads extremely entertainingly. I mean, we, we obviously know that you had fun writing it. The thing I found was kind of interesting about when I first started looking at the comic book, that there's two artists on this book. You have Megan Hetrick and Francesca Fantini. Yes. Are they, and they're both doing, I mean, I know one does the, is doing the backup story, but you have two mm -hmm. doing the main storyline and how are, are, are i mean how are they do you know how they're balancing i mean how are they doing both stories like one doing you know alternate pages different scenes 
No, so they're each doing, I think Megan did issues one and two and Francesca did three through five in the backup story. So you kind of get a lot of the Virginia backstory and things like that from, from Megan. And then as we get into Maya's backstory, Francesca is taking over. So I think it's a really interesting blend to have kind of, again, I think it works really well in terms of like where we have two things meeting, like we have two stories that are coming together, two characters, two artists. And I think it lent itself almost to the intent of the projects. And both are incredibly skilled, obviously, you know, with Megan developing things like Virginia in our first first half of the series. And then Francesca really back ending with like, here's all the stuff about Maya we've been kind of waiting to bring into the story. All right. So Artemis story is going to take her to France in 1944, which so it does seem like you have... Is, are you, is it because of like a, a love for World War II? I mean, is it is, for, that you're keep gravitating toward this one era? Not particularly. Actually, it's it's not something I ever heavily studied or was like the era I was gravitating towards. In both cases, it's the story and the people that I think are driving it. Like Virginia Hall is just such an interesting figure that no matter what period of history she was in, she would just be somebody worth researching and worth knowing about. And we we don't spend too much time in her time period because, you know, by the end of issue one, as you can kind of see, she's meeting the time traveling assassin and things are about to get crazy. So so we're not going to see her in that time period too much. We're going to start removing her, making her kind of that fish out of water and throwing her into different scenarios with Maya. See, what, what, what struck me for a moment was, is, was there any chance that you're going to see Detective Matthew somewhere in the background as like a little nod to your other series? <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Oh, I, I wish we were in Paris now so that I could do that. She's, <laughs> she's like more on the, she's, she's outside of Paris with uh, resistance fighters. And I, oh man, that would be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just, and I, I think what I love in the first issue from a characterization standpoint is the scene where you're, Teach where there's the archery, and mm-hmm. sorry, uh, and Maya is saying that all she sees is the target. I yeah. think that was such a perfect moment of characterization without saying a whole lot of background, without doing a whole lot with her. You understand mm-hmm. almost anything you need to know about that character based on that one comment that all she sees is that one target. Yeah. And that will play so heavily into Maya and her backstory. So, um, I mean, hopefully we can tell from who Maya is. She she is Indian, but her backstory and mythology will play a really heavy role in like who she is in this moment, her powers and her abilities. And that line actually comes from a myth about like art gods that learned archery and about how you couldn't be a successful archer until you were able to block out everything except the target. So Maya being kind of imbued with that same sensibility that makes her such a good warrior in this regard is something that I wanted to bring in, especially since another thing, like kind of the duality that's at play here, like Virginia being super grounded in a realistic character, Maya is very heavily both influenced and a part of mythology, which we'll see kind of play out. So it, I mean, it's not just two different people meeting from two different time periods uh, with different personalities. I mean, it is reality and fact versus mythology and fiction, which I think is going to be really cool as the two interact. Yeah, and I must admit, just for as my own commentary, th- just the idea of being able to be successful only when you can focus on the target at hand seems like a good rule of thumb for almost any profession or anything that you're trying to do. <laughs> just focus on right. the one thing and make that your entire world. And that's when the best comes out of you, which right. I'm sure as a writer, you 
do best when you're only focusing on, on that one goal at a time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I just want to thank you very much for talking to me oh, about Artemis and um, Butcher of Paris. I wanted to get to Amanda Mungi, but we'll do that another time. But thank you very much. You were fantastic. Oh, thank you. All right. Have a very good day and wish Sam's good luck for me. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I'll talk to you later, Well, that was fun. Thank you, Jeff, so much for arranging the interview with Stephanie and making that happen and sitting down with her and, and taking the time to get to know her a little bit. She sounded like an awesome person. I'd love to have her come back on and talk with uh, talk more about what she's working on in the future, maybe more about her history. I mean, she gave us a lot of stuff, but I'd love to hear more. I always want to hear more, right? I, I, these interviews we do, they're so much fun. But you know what, guys? It's, it's, it's late. I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. So that's a show. If you guys enjoyed that and you want to hear more, <laughs> Then head on back down to spoilerverse.com. That's spoilerverse, S P O I L E R V E R S E.com. And check out our back catalog. There is a ton there for you to enjoy. There's so much in the back catalog, so many more interviews with great voice actors and actors and composers and directors and writers and artists, and, and just so many creative people that we've talked to over the last three years. It just, it's an, it's, it's 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 awe inspiring how many people and the kinds of people we talk to and it's, it makes me so blessed for what we do today. I don't use the word blessed, you know, very often, but we also have so many great regular topic episodes of Kinder kind of just you know shooting the shit, talking about whatever, going on tangents, or reviewing a movie, or discussing our opinions on variant covers and stuff like that. So there's so much there for you. Over 300 episodes, more adding every day, and more. You know more from other shows on our network, from from Bridging the Geek Dumps to Nerd Talk Lips to The Shoot and Assist to Misery Point Radio to a bunch of new ones like Narrative Gunslingers just come out, or we have one launching called Polygon Warriors about video games coming out soon. Or actually, by the time you hear this, is probably already out. There's just so much coming out from the Spoilerverse. You, if you're if you're not up to date on it, and you're not into it yet. You need to get into it now. I don't think I could explain it any better than that. Thank you. So. The last thing that we need to say is in oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And Cthulhu always wants you to open your mind even more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>